Welcome to E-Commerce Insights, trends, tips, and lessons learned, sponsored by Atmosol, a leading e-commerce technology company based in Chandler, Arizona, and Dallas, Texas. Each month, we talk to e-commerce entrepreneurs, vendors, and experts who share their expertise, experiences, and thoughts about navigating the ever-changing world of e-commerce. Ready to get started? So are we. Join host Ram Mohan and co-host Honey Olson with today's guests. Hi, welcome everybody. Today we are joined by Dave Malda from Jitterbit and Landon Chefs from Accessibility. And we are going to talk about the accessibility of your website, Omnichannel, and EDI integrations. So gentlemen, why don't you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourselves and your company, and uh, we'll go from there. Sure. Thank you. Uh, I'll, I'll start, uh, Honeys. Nice to meet you all. And thanks for having me today, uh, just on behalf of Jitterbit. So my name is Dave Malda, and I head up the, I'm actually sales director here for North America, specifically in the EDI and uh, e-commerce space. And Landon? Great. And Honey, again, thank you so much for having me on. Um, I'm here representing Accessibility. I work with our agency partners primarily agencies who are focused on e-commerce brands. Be here spreading some of the uh, knowledge regarding web accessibility and you know, making sure the internet's accessible for all. So I guess we could get started. Let's talk about Omnichannel. So uh, Dave, what are some of the key issues that businesses, e-commerce businesses specifically, are facing right now in Omnichannel selling? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question, uh, honey. I think that you know, as we've come out of COVID and even while we were in COVID, I think what we sort of experienced was maybe all of the gaps and all of the, the cracks, if you will, that that existed maybe in the current systems. And I, and I think some of the things that are maybe challenges for, for retailers today are things like, you know, having having multiple sales channels where you're maybe selling through different channels, uh, you have a you know an in-store presence, and you have to integrate all of those different systems, right? So I think setting them up might be easy, you know, separately, but having them all connected is kind of a is a is a big challenge that that can come up. I think inventory is another one, right? So as you know, retailers start to maybe sell globally you know, have these disparate systems that need to have the the proper uh, inventory shown, you know, that becomes a pretty big, pretty big challenge. And then fulfillment and logistics, I think, is another one where if you have a great experience on the front end, but those orders maybe don't make it to your warehouse or to a 3PL in an efficient or timely manner, you know, you're going to start to have some problems, right? So... Those are, those are just a couple of the things, uh, honey, that, that I've sort of noticed over the last couple of years. Uh, and I think probably the, the one thing that's paramount to all of this is really that, that customer experience, right, that gets impacted when some of these things are maybe negative experiences, right? So, so what would you say, what are, um, what are some of the connections that, that Jitterbit works with right now? I mean, obviously, um, well, I'm not going to say obviously, because not all people do this. They use their e-commerce as kind of the hub. 
Yeah, yeah, I would say so. In in again, in my experience um, over the last, I'd say, ten plus years, often what'll happen is the ERP or the accounting package kind of becomes that you know sort of area where all of the the data resides and sort of spreads out from there. So that that's what I've noticed. I'm going to say in probably eighty percent of the cases, it really is either going into the ERP you know, like a NetSuite or a, a Dynamics 365, and then flowing out, right? And so in our space, in our EDI sort of e-com world, it's really driven to and from the ERP or the accounting package most of the time. Not always, but most of the time. So you say like, let's just take Dynamics for that. So you would say like maybe they're invoicing their uh, inventory, everything like that is coming from their ERP going out to whatever different selling channels that they may be going. Isn't the information coming back in then? Y- yes. So uh, here are sur- some common use cases that we kind of run into, uh, I would say, daily, right? It would it would go something like this. You know, they have a, a Magento or a Big Commerce or a Shopify Plus, uh, you know, or maybe a Shopware s- store, online presence. Those orders come flowing in. So any net new orders come flowing into our platform and then they'll get created automatically into, let's say, Dynamics 365, right? Then we take that information, we send it to the 3PL or the warehouse so that they can pick, pack and ship those products. And then now we have a tracking number and we have some shipping details, right? So then that information needs to make its way back from the warehouse back into Dynamics 365 and then, of course, we need to send those statuses, those tracking numbers, all those shipping details back up to the e-commerce platform to make sure that there's a trigger sent out, you know, to the buyer saying it's been shipped. Here's your, you know, here's the arrival date. Um, you know, here's the tracking number. And then we have to make sure we adjust the inventory accordingly, right? So when we pull that order down, the inventory gets depleted appropriately, and that needs to also be reflected back up on the website. Uh, or on the e-commerce platform. And then, you know, I would say third is the, sometimes the product information, you know, gets sent back and forth as well, right? So I might have all of my products in either a PIM or in my ERP, and I'm broadcasting maybe new descriptions, maybe it's some type of a campaign that I'm running. I need to take that information and push that up to the platform as well. So those are I would say like three or four common use cases that we get daily that we're able to solve for. Now you had mentioned before something called frictionless commerce. Yep. What is that? Yeah, we talk about that um, a lot. And so I think, you know, the, the, the goal is to really make the, the, the journey for the buyer as smooth as possible, right? And so, you know, what does that mean? There's a couple of factors here. It starts with discovery, right? So Shopify has this great little tool that I don't know if either, if anyone on the call uh, or on the podcast, I should say, has has used it, but it's, it's shop.ai is the URL. And basically it's using AI to help you discover products that basically you, I could type in something like, I'm having a family barbecue this Saturday and I need the right barbecue for the occasion or something to that effect. And it's going to take that and it's going to ask you some questions. It might say how many people, you know, does it need to be propane or natural gas? And 
And as you're answering these questions, it basically on the left-hand side breaks out products that make sense for what you're asking, right? So there's the discovery side of it. And then I think there's, you know, that's kind of like personalized experiences, I guess you could say, right? And then really making the the checkout experience something that's really smooth, right? I don't I don't know if if you all get this, but if I come to a uh, if I'm buying something, and maybe it's an impulse buy, even sometimes if it's not, no, no, no one does impulse buying, never, right? Like me personally, I've never done that, but <laughs> every weekend, um, and you get presented with this, you know, a form, right? Okay what's your name and your address and then is the billing address i don't know about everyone else but i i like i go oh okay all of a sudden i have this daunting task in front of me where i I really don't want to fill out all this information right and sometimes that can be the a trigger point for you know what do i really need this or maybe i'll do it later right and you sort of abandon the card as they say right so i think that's one thing having a smooth checkout. And then I think uh, just different options for paying, right? So some people are going to are gonna want to use their credit card. Some folks may want to use a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin. I've done that in the past for certain things. Uh, and then maybe it's buy now, pay later, right? Uh, so having those options is really important. And then it's all about I would say like probably lastly, there are multiple factors in here, but I would say lastly, when am I going to get the item? Right. And, and usually, I mean, I see you nodding there, honey. It's, it's like, yeah, I, I, if that's like weeks out, yeah. part of me is like, you know what, I'll just go pick up the barbecue. But if it's coming in two days, it's Wednesday, I'm going to get it by Friday. I'm having something on Sunday. I'm good with that. Right. Having that availability of the estimated delivery time, uh, Amazon obviously does a, wonderful job of that. Uh, there's tools out there and platforms out there that help, like ShipRHQ comes yep. to mind, you know, wonderful company that does a great job of that, um, shows you all the rates, right? So, you know, maybe not even having, I was actually doing this, uh, just a little story. I was doing this yesterday. My son is collecting hockey cards mm-hmm. and he says, dad, I want, I want to buy this, uh, like a binder to, to hold all the cards in. Right. And so I said, yeah, of course, no problem. Let's go check online. Right. And so we, we start looking and it says, oh, this will be, you know, you're going to get this uh, estimated date was in like two and a half weeks. And he's like, oh, like, I, dad, I kind of wanted it for like next week or later this week. Right. And uh, it was just sort of a, a like eye opening to, of course, we didn't buy it. We ended up actually going to the store, but that delivery date is so important. So when we talk about a jitterbit, that frictionless experience it's kind of those four or five things where you want to guide the buyer through these steps as elegantly as possible and with the least amount of hurdles as possible. And you all can probably attest to this, that it like a hurdle doesn't have to be a mountain. It can actually be a wee little speed bump on that journey and people, it'll disrupt the transaction. Right? So um, I don't know if that helps kind of paint a picture, uh, yeah. honey, but that that's really what we mean, right? Buyer all the way through to I've received my product, making that as smooth as possible. And companies that nail it 
like I think Amazon's kind of nailed it. When I buy things from Amazon, I, I can actually get them sometimes the same day here. I, like, <laughs> I love that, man. If I need some paper for the printer or something, there must yeah. be a warehouse down the road and I get it. It's like, okay, if you order before 10 a.m., you'll have it by two. Like that is like, it's unbelievable. It's actually really cool. So talking about hurdles, I'm going to shift over to Landon real quick because obviously you know, Accessibility is one of the, you know, one of the companies that deals with hurdles. What are some of the hurdles or some of the things that, that Accessibility is seeing with, you know, people in e-commerce? So I would say, you know, one of the main hurdles that people are seeing is there's a whole population of people, people with disabilities who, you know, want equal access to your website. They deserve, quite frankly, equal access to your website. And, you know, I don't think a lot of website owners, you know, have not developed their site in an accessible manner because of any ill will or anything along those lines. It's usually they just never thought about it or they thought about it a long time ago. It seemed really complicated and they put it on the back burner and said, one day we'll figure it out. Um, but, you know, we do hear stories. We work with a lot of people with disabilities with our user testing. And one story that really stuck with me was somebody we work with who's a C4, C5 quadriplegic. Um, he uses uh, an assistive technology. It's a click stick in his mouth to navigate mm-hmm. through sites. And he said that he got all the way through his Valentine's Day buying something for his wife. And he got all the way through to the checkout process. And that's where he couldn't enter his credit card. He said, like, you know, not only did I feel poorly about the whole situation, but they did lose a customer and a real sale right there on the spot. So, you know, first and foremost, I I do think it's just the right thing to do. And, you know, just making the the internet a better place for everybody. But, you know, there is a real market that's that's being missed out on because of this. I think, you know, I think to to, uh, kind of tie the two, it also comes to frictionless, right? Especially for people with some some disabilities. So, you know, if you don't have that accessibility, then it's complete friction for them, right? I mean, so that's that's kind of both tied together. How can you make it frictionless, not just for some people, but for everybody, right? Be inclusive. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I just wanted to talk about, you know, for some reason I was muted, but also wanted to talk about, you know, when you say frictionless, there's also a lot more about experience there. Uh, I know that Jitterbird can enable some of that by, you know, connecting things together and having that information available. But as you were speaking, I was thinking about simple things like filters, right? The other day we were shopping for furniture and we left a site because it doesn't have a filter by size. I'm like, I need the size. If you don't have a filter by size, even though you have good products, I'm not scrolling through a thousand products to find the site. I just go somewhere else. So, I mean, probably not, not as much in context with this, but frictionless means a lot of things to do, you know, that encompasses uh, all of e-commerce in, in fact. Yeah, that's a, it's a really good point, uh, Ram. I think that um, I know for you're talking furniture, and that's such an interesting one, right? Because we looked a couple of years ago at a sectional, and it was a fairly big L couch, and it was for our living room where we, you know, we watch movies and have, have the TV on sometimes. You could look at this on the website, and they did have some sizing, but how it would look in the room and maybe even would this fit was like really interesting, right? So they had this, I think it was Wayfair, and they you could take your phone, you could turn the camera on so it's showing the room, 
And then it would place the product on the camera. And it was really cool. Like it, it actually really helped because you're moving around the room and, and I'm like, okay, like actually this would fit. And, and it, the coloring and the size of it actually makes sense for the room. And that was a, I would say that that helped us buy that product because we didn't really know how it was going to look. And it was a fairly big item. So to go to the store, you know, you see it in the showroom. Hey, it's going to look great, right? Bringing it home and seeing what it's going to look like is very different. And so this kind of helped like close that gap to encourage us to go buy it. It wasn't cheap. Go buy it. We set it up and it was like, yeah, this is perfect, man. So that's a really great point that you make. There's some really good tools out there for furniture, even clothes, glasses. I do have a question, Landon. You may or may not have this answer. Um, so we're talking about, and, and Amazon has some of these too on some of the products you can see, you know, put it in my room. If someone is, say, blind, will it talk to them? Will it tell them it's going to fit? I mean, that, that's, I understand, you may not have that answer because I don't know. Right. Um, so if the technology has come that far yet. I, I don't think we're, we're quite there, right? But, <laughs> you know, most sites you know, at least a, a majority of sites that we work with that are, you know, e-commerce focused, these agencies do add filtered sections, mm-hmm. right? And um, one of the trickier things is, yeah, if you're blind, right, you have a screen reader that's downloaded into your operating system and it's reading out the content of the site. What usually is done is that things aren't labeled properly. So gotcha. although they may hear the word size and then, you know, maybe certain amount of inches or whatever the case is, they don't know that it's actually a button that they could click to filter down to those sizes, right? Um, and these are all ARIA labels, role attributions, not to be, as a, I'm not a developer, I won't get too technical, <laughs> but um, you know, these are very important things that when I'm going about my everyday life, at least prior to working here, never really had to think about when I was shopping online. I don't know too much about, you know, when augmented reality and, uh, Accessibility combined quite yet. Um, that might be something. Uh, no, that comes comes down. And I'll leave that up to the the Zuckerbergs. But <laughs> yeah, you know, um, yeah, blind users are having the content of the site read out. You know, one of the most common things, and this is sort of a basic tip that most businesses are already doing these steps at the minimum, is making sure that your images are tagged properly. Right. And making sure that it, instead of it saying image or image 74359 or just nothing at all, that it says, you know, our brown sectional L, whatever model or something along those lines. And, you know, some one of the beauties of having an automated solution is that it can pick up on context clues around the site. And because of how many sites that it is on, it actually provide those alt tags and RE labels to make the site a bit more compatible with that user's assistive technology. So now, I have a question because you talked about, you know, labels on the images. So, you know, development, you know, we go in, we do a lot of, you know, the alt text and stuff for our clients. Right. But even Google will say, you know, if it's like a hero and it has no bearing, mm-hmm. don't put anything on it, which you know, makes no sense to me because, you know, if someone's looking at my site, right, I would want them to be able to see it from top down see it top down just like anyone else would so you know if my hero is you know a a picture of a woman sitting on you know uh 
an island drinking a drink because I'm a travel agency. That sounds lovely, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I would want, you know, someone who, you know, may not see that beautiful picture, but be able to read it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, you know, what I've seen become a pretty common trend within e-commerce and, you know, it's probably in this way for, for a while now, but is text actually embedded within images. And typically that text is a call to action, right? Something about, a, you know, a sale that's going on, shop now, and, you know, it might be a clickable image, right? All of these different things. And if you don't properly tag that, the screen reader has no chance of picking up that text, right? If it's um, just sort of as an actual text on top of it, you know, maybe it'll be read out, hopefully with the right context. You know, that's a big hopefully. But if it is embedded, you really need that alt tag to actually state not only what's happening within the image, but that text that's embedded there. Again, usually that is a call to action. So it's something that's very, very vital to actually turning some user into a, a real sale and real revenue. Is it a requirement, uh, Landon, to have your site accessible in, in North America? I know you're, you're in Canada. And there are rules in in Canada as well as the states, as I'm sure you've you've heard about us here in the states. We're a little, you know, we get a little happy to uh, quick to sue people. Um, so, what essentially happened is that in 2019, the Supreme Court officially ruled that websites are also considered places of public accommodation. So, therefore, they must, you know, make sure that they are accessible to those with disabilities. Um, In the states, that applies to the Americans with Disabilities Act, which is where the lawsuits come from. It does come from a place where people wanted equal rights. They wanted access. Unfortunately, it has maybe become a bit of an environment where certain law firms have found, hey, this is kind of a quick way for us to make some money. Right. Advantage of the system. And it caused some friction sort of between you know, business owners who maybe didn't know about this, had no ill intent, um, and the community. But yeah, so it is a requirement from that end where you're very vulnerable. E-commerce is because the whole business is sort of online is the most targeted um, or most litigated against. But there are other sections um, to it, like Section 508, which is if you've received any federal funding or PPP loans, for example, you may Mm -hmm. require this and they may ask for sort of like real proof um, in the form of something called a VPAT. I won't get into all the acronyms. <laughs> Accessibility is all about acronyms. Yeah. Uh, and in um, Canada, you know, there's provincial acts as well. So there's the AODA where the government's, instead of, you know, an individual or a class action lawsuit happening is the government, you know, fining companies. Okay. Um, and, you know, we hear about it constantly that there's new... Uh, provincial laws being, you know, introduced at the very least. On top of that, there's the Accessible Canada Act. Just one thing to sort of wrap all of this up, you know, but the short answer is yes, I would could definitely hear this, you know, sort of mandatory aspect at this point, um, according to the courts. But all of this falls under this really long guidebook called the WCAG, the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines. Okay. I've taken a look at it, a uh, little overwhelming. It's about a thousand yeah. pages long. The gist of it is, how should this website look and feel for somebody who has a disability? You know, primarily blind users who are using a screen reader. 
uh, people with motor impairments who use their keyboard to navigate or other assistive technologies, but also people with low vision, people yeah. who have epilepsy or colorblindness. And it's about 20% of the population. It's a very oh, wow. large market share. And I think what people tend to not take into consideration is we're also talking about just maybe older users, right? Yeah. Sure. My mom is the biggest online shopper I've ever seen. If you're selling furniture or clothes, you don't want to work <laughs> business, I promise you. <laughs> but, you know, she does the old-fashioned way. She goes on her Mac. She presses Command Plus like 40 times. I laugh at her when I'm home, and I'm like, Mom, first of all, get your eyes checked. And number two, please <laughs> just use a different, you know, a site that has yeah. a tool that's going to allow you to increase the size, saturation, make it easier for you to view. Because uh, people will you know, leave the website once it's too difficult to use, essentially. Yeah. 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 We recently got to know those little guidelines quite well. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and, and we've actually had, I would say, you know, over the course of, you know, 10, 12 years, we've probably had four or five clients that were sued. And, you know, and then it's like, you know, mad scramble. They're coming to us in, in utter panic wanting everything fixed, you know, down to, you know, hey, this button shifts off just a little bit and it can't do that. This area label is missing. We had to get to know those, uh, that right. thousand page document quite well. <laughs> um, you know, and, and the thing is, is too, is, you know, you run into different aspects of that depending on, you know, what uh, platform they're using. Because some of the platforms will actually lock some of that stuff down, like the checkout where you can't yeah. get to it. And so you know, we run into challenges there and then you, you end up having to go back to the platform and saying, you know, hey, can you please help out here? Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I, I, again, I primarily work with agencies um, who their clients are e-commerce clients. And the feedback that I hear a lot, and I'm sure a lot of you know people listening who have internal development teams is every time they want to add a new collection, you know, right now, I'm sure summer collections are already out, but you know, when fall collections are coming around, if you're doing it the old fashioned way, which, you know, I, I never knock the old fashioned way. It is a bit on the pricier side going in and actually doing everything by, by hand. But every time you want to make an update, change a product, you do have to go and make sure that everything's fully remediated prior to adding it and having something that's automated, that's actually going to scan your site every 24 hours making sure that all new items, all new collections, all new content is maintaining its accessibility and compliance is something that saves developers countless hours, saving businesses, you know, tens, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars if they are really taking their accessibility seriously. Did I get that right? Like as you add new items and, and update things, update your inventory, this, this accessibility needs to be updated as well, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the the original option was either internally or through a third party, you do sort of an audit of your website's accessibility. It says, hey, you have you know these 600 images without alt tags. This header is in the wrong place. Yep. This button isn't properly labeled. Um, contrast, yeah. And the contrast is a whole other story because yeah. you're going to get 2,000 of those errors. <laughs> and, you know, that was uh, very, just getting that audit was expensive. And then, you know, if you're going to pay somebody to fix it, it's only fixing it at that current moment. They can do some stuff 
from the infrastructure level. Right. But unless whoever's adding the content is very well trained and knowledgeable in accessibility specifically, it's pretty much impossible to maintain um, where it really does sort of leave automated solutions to be the only, I would say, viable option unless you really have somebody dedicated inside of the company to accessibility for e-commerce brands. So what makes it different? I mean, like, how does accessibility go through and find where to put all the right stuff? You know, the AI does go above my head. You know, I'll say that every time I, I show people how it works, a lot of people are very impressed and they say, okay, I actually, how is it doing that? And I don't know. You know <laughs> somebody, somebody much smarter than me developed it and created it. But, you know, one great example that I always like to share is, you know, when we go on a website and there's like the Facebook icon, right? We know that that's probably a button and that's going to take us to Facebook. And if it opens in a new window or a new tab or the same tab, it doesn't really matter to, to us because we can simply go back, right? Mm -hmm. But somebody who may be blind, they might just hear the word logo and that's it. No oh. context whatsoever. And what our solution will do if you just leave a button to Facebook like that, our solution will actually jump in, fill it in with a new span, um, if we're going to go technical here, uh, <laughs> with an ARIA label that says Facebook button, new window. So now that user knows that not only is this going to take them to Facebook, it is clickable and it's going to open up in a new window, trying to provide as much sort of detail as possible. And that's really due to the, the user testing we do. We work with a lot of centers dedicated to education for people with different, varying different disabilities. And, um, you know, they test our products. They uh, use different assistive technologies and we're always taking their feedback. I know it's a little cheesy, but we always say accessibility is a journey, not a destination. Um, and I think that's, that's very true. We're talking front end, you know, accessibility is for front end. What if you're a business owner and you have someone with a disability in the back end? Is there any way to help them? Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of things you could do within, you know, let's say it's like an employee portal. Is that sort of, you know, maybe one example? Well, you know, like maybe you, maybe you have someone um, that may not be completely blind, but, you know, mm -hmm. hard to see, but they're a developer. Yeah. And they, you know, they need to be able to access the admin of Magento. Mm -hmm. Is that something SSB can help with, or is it only for the front end for end users? It's mostly accessibility specifically. Well, I should separate it a little bit. Accessibility is the company, right? Okay. The, the solution that I've sort of been talking about, the AI-based solution is called the Access Widget. We do have a number of other solutions as well as consulting, um, manual services, manual audits um, for things that are more app-based or back-end. Mm -hmm. But if it does have a public-facing domain, we are able to work on it. So that's really where sort of the disconnect starts to happen is if it doesn't have a public facing domain, we can't really attach to it. Gotcha. Um, but we do have different products where developers who, you know, are a bit, yeah, let's say developers as opposed to maybe designers can yeah. go in and actually learn more about where their code is inaccessible. And, you know, that will work on, on applications as well, which then can lead to uh you know, maybe that developer that you were describing who may be hard of or, excuse me, low vision, um, being able to go in and have an easier time doing his job. 
Um, so obviously, uh, Dave, accessible will not work with EDI. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> we work with EDI and it's hard to work with EDI. <laughs> we'll let the, uh, the sales engineers work that one out. But. <laughs> We've talked about, you know, EDI and integrations. You know, um, I know the Jitterbit has other things that they do as well. Um, you want to share some of that? Sure. Yeah. And Ram, I don't know if you wanted to, you were, it looked like you were maybe going to jump in and say something. No, no, there's some noise in my background. So I'm just trying to mute and unmute all the time to make sure uh, that. Gotcha. Everybody. gotcha. Yeah. So as far as, as far as, you know, capabilities for, for Jitterbit, Jitterbit it, it's actually quite impressive. Um, you know, it, it does branch out beyond DDI and e-commerce. There, there are many other sort of, sectors that that will work in but if i if i stay in the edi e-commerce sort of let's say swim lanes a few of the other things we'll do and we have a ton of experience with the current team that we have i would say that it's you know if we take the collective years of people it's hundreds of years of experience so for example you know i'm around 15 16 years there are some folks that are on the sales team that are you know well beyond you know six or seven years. So there's a kind of a plethora of of EDI and e-commerce knowledge that allows us to to not only you know really help with the use case, but to really deeply understand what is needed and then to offer sometimes a best practice approach, right? So you may have a business that is doing something a certain way because that is the way they've always done it. And we're able to maybe approach it and walk them through maybe a different business operation flow that maybe makes a little more sense and that the platform is able to, to, to help, you know, bring in some efficiencies, right? So um, I don't know if that helps uh, Honey paint a little bit of a picture, but definitely anything EDI, you know, we've done that for years, you know, more than 30 years. Um <laughs> And then on the e-commerce side, I would say we're probably coming up on, let's say, a decade. Like the, I do recall the first Magento integration that we did into, I think it was like Sage 100, yeah. and uh, it was Magento Enterprise. There was Magento Community and Magento Enterprise, and we really helped those community customers that maybe got the open source uh, package and were sort of starting to bring it to its limit, they would move over to enterprise. And then a lot of those folks had, you know, maybe bigger ERPs and we would help step in and uh, do those integrations between, you know, Magento and, and, uh, and the ERP. And then what inevitably started to happen was you had sort of two things. One was you had people that were, you know, businesses that were running in store retail locations and they were moving online. So they may come to us and say, listen, we've launched this site, right? A Shopify site or a big commerce site. And we're starting to see some order volume. And if that order volume was typically north of say 200 orders in a given month, the manual processes and the number of people needed to scale with that would become either unmanageable or way too expensive. And that's where we were able to step in, right? And then the reverse would be you had companies that were selling online primarily. They may have started like we saw this sort of with vitamins and uh, even like 
fruits and vegetables and like packaged um, uh, like dinners and meals and stuff like that. They may be started online, but then also move to in-store or pop-up or marketplace, right? And they had the, the other issue, which was we're really great at attracting folks to buy online. We need help with our EDI because we've now signed a contract with Costco or Bass Pro or Cabela's, and they're asking us to do EDI, and we don't understand what that is, right? And so there was, you know, they're asking us to be EDI compliant. What does that mean? And so those are always fun discussions because you're kind of starting from the ground, you know, level and moving up, right? And it, it really is just a compliance thing. It's a way of doing business with a big box store or a retailer, and you have to do it that way. And so there is no, there is no opt out. You can't say, well, no, you know what? I'll send you an email or I'll text you, right? When you buy from us, I'll just, it doesn't work that way. You need to be EDI compliant. You need to be able to accept 850s, send 810s, send 856s. So you learn very quickly. They lean on us pretty hard to help educate them and help get them kind of ready with these retailers. And then you have some, we have plenty of companies that are, you know, working with sometimes 20, 30, 50 trading partners, and they know the drill. They'll come to us and just say, okay, we've got another five that we're now uh, selling into. Please help us just become EDF those as well, right? So what happens if someone comes to you with a really, really old ERP? Yeah, great question. Because we've yeah. come across that. <laughs> yeah. That's a great question. So, you know, certainly the old on-premise accounting packages and ERPs, we are able to deal with. Uh, in fact, I would say we have plenty of experience with that. Um, you know, it might be, let's say, Dynamics AX or Dynamics GP or some of the Sage products, right, are, are on-premise. And we're able to uh, connect to those systems and make that data flow back and forth. Of course, you know, with some of the, the new SaaS platforms, you know, calling those APIs and, and you know, we have connectors that, uh, you know, that we work with that are obviously things that come out of the box and you don't have to rebuild it every time. Um, we're able to, to, to really lean into those pretty quickly and pretty hard. But the on-premise stuff, we do a lot of and we get a lot of requests for it. And um, we get a lot of requests for file integration, right? Hey, I, I drop off, you know, delimited uh, files that need to be consumed by something or I, you know, I get EDI that gets dropped off into an F a secure FTP and I need you to pick that up and, cons you know, we have a product that will consume it or get it into the ERP, right? So there's so many, it's actually kind of fascinating how many different variations of moving data back and forth we run into. It's, it's actually part of why I love working at Jitterbit is really every day, every week does bring new challenges. And the great thing is, is it's very rare that you say no. It can be a it can be a time and a money thing, right? For sure. Right. But you can kind of do anything. And um, yeah, with the flexibility of our Harmony platform, uh, there really isn't a lot that we can't do. What's Harmony? Uh, so Harmony is just the name of our of our Jitterbit platform. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you named it. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah. And actually, it, it has, if you go to our website too, it has a actually kind of a cool uh, music theme. Um, that's the name Jitterbit actually comes from from music, and there's a, there's a whole backstory to it. But you'll notice that on the 
in the branding, just kind of a neat uh, sound music sort of vibe to it. So it wasn't to play on eHarmony, right? You know, connecting. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. I might have to take that offline and find out. <laughs> now, I have a question because I'm thinking like I'm going way back now. So we had a client a um, long time ago that was on Magento okay. and they had a 3PL, but it was their own 3PL. Like they literally owned their own warehouse. Okay. Everything that they had built was, was custom. It was their own custom software. You know, they had everything built into it. Is that something you guys can still work with, even though, you know, it's not like an out-of-the-box system? It's it's literally something they built internally? Yeah, I, yes, we, we could. And, and I say yes, not just for the sake of saying yes. This might be the case there, right? So it might be that the warehouse is expecting some sort of a, an XML file or a structured delimited CSV file or something, right? And so um, often we'll understand what they currently have. Mm-hmm. We'll do what we call sort of a rough order of magnitude, which is which is really understanding what what the current requirements are. What do you have in place? And then does it make sense to continue to use that, let's say, legacy technology, or is there maybe a better way to do it? Right? And sometimes the better way to do it might be um, a ship station coming in, right? Maybe, maybe um, now the, the sales cycle is obviously going to be a little longer because you're, you're introducing new things, but ultimately you want to help the business be efficient. And if they're on something that's very old and maybe it's going to you know, prohibit them from scaling properly, it might be the time to re-platform, right? And it might be the time to say goodbye to that old technology. I know it's easy for me to say a lot different to do, but we'll come to the table with those recommendations. And uh, in the case of what you're talking about, we would just understand the requirements. You know, what can the warehouse of the 3PL accept? How do they get their orders today? And often there is, you know, either a file or maybe they've made their own implementation guide. I've seen that happen before, uh, Honey, where they have their own file structure that they've created. And so maybe it's not documented, right? So they'll say, well, we have these files, we can share them with you. And, you know, they're structured, so it, it can be mapped to, right? You're able to map to something. And uh, we'll, we'll just uncover all of those different pieces and see if there's a way we can tap into that existing older technology. Or like I said, sometimes the best thing to do is maybe recommend some newer technology. Yeah, I honestly, this was so long ago. This was... Oh, this is when Amazon Web Store shut their doors. And okay. They yep. had to, yeah, and the company transferred. And they went to Magento, and that was the struggle. Was you know that everything had been set up. They were already good to go. They had you know Amazon connected, and everything was working. Yep. And we had to come up with some way for it to work in Magento. And I think we ended up having to write something custom. Yeah, that could be. Yeah, it doesn't. You know, it's not always that we're able to. To, you know, have something that makes sense. But uh, often if someone's replatforming, you know, we, we do get requests where, you know, somebody's switching from maybe a custom website that they're, you know, going to retire and they're going to a big commerce or something. And uh, it, it you know, they haven't maybe thought all the way through that, oh, shoot, we kind of have this custom integration that works now. Right. It's been someone's maintained it in-house for years. And now you're right. We're going to go to big commerce. That's going to break this, you know, these flows. And yeah. they'll 
come to us and say, can you, can you help? Right. And often we're able to step in, understand what, what they're doing and uh, recommend, uh, you know, a, a good way forward. So. I mean, I, I can, I can uh, tell you some other ideas that we've done. <laughs> so, you know, in, in terms of not, this is not e-commerce. So we also do product dev, right? So yeah. at one point in our life, there was an entire series of applications that looked at the mainframe and put things into into a client server system. And what it really did was just read the screen like a person would, right? I don't know. There was a class of applications called screen scraper applications, which just went and write the screen, put that into another one. I mean, I, I'm saying that as a joke, but in the modern world, there is an entire AI field, which I was in a meeting with for, for some AI stuff this morning, and there's an entire AI field called robotic process automation. Right? What essentially robotic product process automation does, not all of it, but a lot of it is about things that you, you do, you know, that you have to read from here and write there. Right? So it essentially does that. And quite a bit of it actually uses what's called scraping, right? Just go and, and, and you know, we've, we've built some products in the past where there are integrations where one party in the integration is not interested. Like, you know, if, if I am a guy building a small software and I have to integrate with, you know, Microsoft something, Microsoft's like, hey, I'm not interested in connecting with you. And then sometimes we had to go connect using, okay, I'll just read it, right? From the screen yeah. as well, I'm a user. I mean, yeah. that's, that's like the next level of, you know, like you were saying, there's the, the good way, which is the API, the, the you know, um, other EDI, whatever that, the the, auto, the the predictable transmission, right? Yeah. And then it's the next level, which is the file or the FTP or, you know, something like that. And and then I guess the last level is when you go and say, well, I'm going to brute force read the screen and put it over there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You change the screen, the entire software is changed. Yeah, yeah, it's it's never, it's for sure never a dull moment. And um, I I can say that over the last, I'll say probably like two or three years, and maybe this, maybe COVID accelerated this, but I I have found that the ability to connect into APIs or folks coming to us with endpoints that are what I would call named or that we recognize is really. That, that happens 95% of the time, right? So they're they're running one of the kind of core platforms in the ecosystem, right? And they're connecting into a very common, you know, ERP in North America, right? And then those flows, you know, those three or four workflows that I, those use cases that I shared earlier, it is typically those are the use cases, right? And what, what's exciting now is as companies start to sell globally, look for different ways to increase their sales, especially now, right? You just start to run into some really interesting use cases where, you know, you might be connecting th to things that, uh, you know, like house, for example, there's there's a, a couple of others where, um, yeah, we, we, we just sort of see this steady climb of, I think, businesses, and you'll hear this sort of everywhere, businesses, no longer dictate where you can buy the product. Uh, you need to be where your customer yeah. wants to buy the product. And, and so that requires you to ask your customers, where do you want to buy this and where are you buying this? And then you need to, you need to be there. And, and so for us, sitting in the middle, we need to help those companies you know, connect everything, kind of going back to that customer experience so that it is a wonderful one because... There's nothing like ordering something 
you know, you've spent your money and then you don't get an email with a tracking number or it goes quiet for a couple of days and you start going, oh, I wonder what happened to that. Yeah, I, I personally don't buy from those businesses again. You kind of have one shot. And the reverse is when it's very pleasant, it's like, oh man, I got to, that was great. I got to do that again. Right. And so there's a lot happening in the background to make that on the front end seem very seamless. Right. Now you made me think of something when you started talking global. So I'm going to flip back over to Landon real quick. (laughs) So we talked about accessibility. We talked about, you know, screen reading, things like that. What if it's a different language? That's definitely something we've taken into consideration. So, you know, one of the great features about accessibility and the access widget in particular is that we're supported in 16 different languages. Okay. So, you know, essentially what that means is, you know, if you were to go into the interface and, you know, choose whichever flag of the language you'd like to hear, it was actually really impressive to see the first time I sort of realized what was happening, but it actually changes the alt tags that we're filling in into alt tags in said language. Oh, so cool. You cho- chose Portuguese. I shouldn't have used that as an example. I don't speak any, but, um, you know, it, it will say white dog in, in running in a field, but in Portuguese. So I won't do that impression. I won't live any. <laughs> um, no, it, it actually is really, you know, it is smart enough to pick up on that. We're adding new languages constantly. Um, I believe it's been like three in the past, I would say, six months that we've added. Um, you know, okay. Polish being one of them. And, you know, it's just, you know, we, whenever, wherever there's a market for this and we've seen people requesting, you know, businesses reaching out to us saying, hey, we're in need of accessibility and we realize where they are. You know, yeah. we start adding languages when we start to see trends. So do you go by the laws of where the main store is located? It's a great and question. then, or like, I mean, what if it's, a language, you know, say Portuguese, and they have different compliance rules. So back to the original, the WCAG, and I know I said I had a lot of acronyms, Dave. I think you may have actually, <laughs> um, but you know, it, it all comes back to this WCAG, this mythical, you know, thousand-page book, right? And right now, the current global legal acceptance standard that you know all of the EU follows that. The States, Canada, Japan, Israel, all of these countries who really enforce accessibility a bit more strict, they all fall under the WCAG 2.1 at the AA level. And that's exactly what the access widget brings your site to in terms of compliance. And one more point to that is just, you know, we talked about what if a developer does it or what if you go through a third party that's doing it with a scan and then you do it internally. We already discussed that if you add new content, you may fall out of compliance. Right. What if the compliance standards change? You know, what what are you going to do then? What if now it's that, you know, all of the headers have to have a certain sort of aspect to it or area labels need to be even a bit more specific? Whatever the case may be, that would involve you now going into that site that maybe has, you know, 16,000 products, you know, 30,000 pages and making every individual change once again, where for us being an automated uh, technology, we can just push that new standard across all of the sites essentially overnight. So what in the case of a lot of e-commerce platforms, you you use extensions or things like that. 
What if a business is using an extension for their forms, say, that that form itself, that third-party extension has not built in the things for ADA compliance? Will yeah. assessment add it or are you just, now you just, you, you're in trouble? That's a great question. So most forms, or less, I should say the, the most popular forms tools out there are accessible. They're embedded within the site, essentially, right? That being said, if something was embedded within the site, no automated solution and no, no person who's doing it manually is going to be able to make those changes because they would have to, of course, access, you know, um, example form company, whatever example startup form company there is, they would need to be able to access their code in order to make it accessible. That being said, you know, it comes down to sort of a, a liability issue and, you know, people argue in both directions. You know, you've decided to put this form on your site when there's other versions that are accessible out there. You know, if it opens up into a new page entirely, you know, it's really no longer your site. But, you know, that being said, there are best practices. Find forms that are accessible, right? If you were building a form yourself, have something like the access widget on there that can make sure it's accessible. Or, you know, if you do insist on doing it on your own, um, make sure that you're marking things required, you know, in a way that a screen reader is going to pick up on. So for iPhones or other embedded aspects, you know, unfortunately, no automated solution or no accessibility expert can really go in and do too much um, besides maybe give you some advice. All right. I had to ask because we recently had this situation. Um, so we had a client that had an embedded form and we couldn't make any changes on it. Uh, went back to the developer of this and, and they're a large company too, by the way, which okay. really struck me. And they said, they're sorry. They, it, there's just, they don't have it. It's been on their roadmap for three years to make their forms have accessibility. I'm, I work at a startup. I know how roadmaps work. We, uh, <laughs> well, this wasn't a startup. This is a huge okay. company. So we ended up having to bring the form in as a JavaScript so okay. that we would be able to make the changes to it to meet the requirements. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a bit of a nightmare. Um, you know, that being said, people are becoming more aware of this. I mean, people are doing outreach to people with disabilities to even share the knowledge of, Hey, there are tools out there that you may not have even been aware of that are going to make your life a little bit easier. Um, right. one example of this is, um, next Thursday actually is global accessibility awareness day. Right. So um, May 18th, and that day is just dedicated to sort of spreading the knowledge. And, you know, it's not um, particularly an accessibility thing. It's, uh, you know, an organization who's just put together a day to get the word out about web accessibility, why it's important, where people are sort of um, making the most mistakes. And, you know, what we're seeing are as lawsuits do rise and, you know, they start targeting companies who maybe have built booking platforms or, you know, ordering systems or forms, right? And as liability starts to fall more and more on them, they will be pressured into making sure that their product is accessible. And that's going to make everybody's life just a little bit, a little bit easier. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As to call back from earlier, maybe a bit more frictionless. So. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I also think it's not just about lawsuits because you mentioned something like 20% of the people could be colorblind or have other smaller forms of 
disabilities when they're not blind, right? I mean, that's right. a large market for people to just ignore, don't you think? I mean, I, I hate that the conversation that we have often turns into conversations around lawsuits. You know, we want yeah. people to come in and say, look, we want to do the right thing, right? Yeah. We want to make our brand, not only our brand more inclusive, but you know, we really want to walk the walk. We don't want to just talk the talk and say, hey, we're about diversity, equity, right? We're socially aware, but we actually want to take real steps towards that. But you know, we're also realists, right? We understand that businesses do want to protect themselves. They do want to make sure that they are mitigating their legal risk. But Ram, um, absolutely to your point, this is a huge market with almost you know a trillion dollars in spending power in the United States. That uh, people are missing out on, quite frankly. I mean, you know, if if you if you're not if you if ethics don't appeal to you, I'm sure profits do. To <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, it's been such a conversation that we're already out of time, guys. That's crazy. Uh, <laughs> so, I just want to uh, give you guys a chance that if someone's interested in in Jitterbit and you know what Jitterbit can do for their company, Dave, what's the best way of them getting a hold of someone to get help? Yeah, I would say I would say um, you know reach out to me on LinkedIn for sure. Just Dave Malda, uh, type in Jitterbit, I'll show up. Or on Twitter uh, at Dave Malda, or you can hit me up email for sure, Dave Malda M A L D A uh, at Jitterbit.com, and I'd be uh, more than happy to to help out and answer any questions. So any three of those forms works uh, works for me. Okay, same question to you, Landon. Yeah, absolutely. Feel free to reach out to myself directly. My email address is LandonSH at accessibility.com, spelled like the word accessible without the L. And I'll be happy to educate you a bit more about um, exactly how it could work for your website. Um, and I really appreciate the, the opportunity to be here, honey. All right. Well, thanks, Likewise. guys. It was a great conversation. And uh, I actually have some things I need to do on my website now. <laughs> so thank you very much for joining us likewise take care everybody bye-bye goodbye thank you for listening to e-commerce insights presented by atmosol we hope you have learned something new or took a nugget of information away to help you as you travel the world of e-commerce until next time keep asking questions evolving your business and learn every day.